Good morning. So this is uh, part seven, part seven, and we'll have one more sermon in this section next week, and then we'll, we'll move on to the next section in chapter 15. But if you're not already there, would you uh, open your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, we have blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you. You can grab one of those and flip that open to page 948. That would bring you to our text this morning. Terry was mentioning just the, the body and all the parts of the body. We do have, I was just thinking that my, to myself this morning as well, we do have a really awesome, uh, I call them an awesome crew, an awesome body. Uh, God is good and he's given us uh, really beautiful people. Just as an example, it happens every week, but this, not in the, in, and we, I see it every week, but this week especially, we, uh, they normally open the place up for us at 8.30 and a crew gets here and, and we set up and for whatever reason, it doesn't happen, it's very infrequent, but the person didn't show, they didn't show up till nine, and so it takes a while for us to set everything up and get everything running, but nobody complains, everyone just steps it up, uh, people come in and help, it's just a, you know, it's no problem, and I just see that week in, week out, this body of Christ is really in, unique, it's unique, I think, and I'm glad and, and happy to be a part of it. So, beloved, uh, let me ask you a question, and I've been kind of hammering away at this. Uh, are you concerned about and committed to the spiritual profit of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Just ask yourself that question. Are you concerned about and committed to the spiritual profit, the spiritual good of your brothers and sisters in Christ? And uh, let me take it a step further. And so much so that you are willing uh, to deny yourself uh, or make personal sacrifices for that good, for the good of your brothers and sisters. If you're not, why not? And if you are, do you see that evident in your life? Really, that is what Paul is addressing here. He's concerned about the unity in the church in Rome, and and a really, there's a lack of love that's really causing the issues that Paul addresses. So we're going to look at it again. We've been looking at it. We'll read the text. Hopefully, if you weren't here last week, you can hear that sermon online and and catch up to see where we are. But let's begin in Romans chapter 15, and I'll read verses 1 through 6. And remember, this section started in in, uh, chapter 14, and we've just kind of been working our way all the way through. This is all the way to chapter 15, verse uh, 12, 20, yeah, I'm sorry, uh, verse 13. So let's read 15, 1 through 6. We who are strong, Paul says, he identifies with the strong. I've gone over that before. What, who are the strong? Who are the weak? We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at uh, verses 1 through 3 last week, and we didn't finish verse 3, but just quickly, love, beloved, love, which Paul's already addressed, and we saw that earlier in Romans in our obligation, our never-ending debt to love one another. Love obligates us and the Christians in Rome to whom Paul was writing to look out for the weak in this particular situation, to look out for them. And that means to refrain then from uh, criticizing and judging them and do what love, biblical love, would require of them. 
One writer said, I quoted this last week, the strong must respect the weak. They must not hurt them. And at all times, they must strive for what is for their good. So uh, is that true of you? Are you striving for what is for the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And beloved, you don't have to stop there. You don't have to stop there. Certainly, this has a church context. It is, it is written to and is about the church. But uh, what about your spouse? What about your spouse? Do you, are, you, are you concerned about and committed to the spiritual profit of your spouse? Because that's what love would require of you. How about your children? Uh, how about your neighbor? How about your coworker? And then uh, Paul kind of, not kind of, he, he, he says, all right, you want an example of this? Let me give you the greatest example of this type of love, this self-sacrificing, self-denying love. Uh, it's Christ, for Christ did not please himself. And uh, one writer said that that's a remarkable understatement uh, for his marvelous and wholehearted self-sacrifice in the interest of sinners. It certainly is. Christ is our model. Christ is the example. You want to know what love looks like? You want to know how we are to love? Look at Christ. Look to Christ. And so we're just going to pick up right now where we left off last week, and it was in the middle of verse 3. So look back there, Romans 15, 3. Paul says, after he gives that exhortation that the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please themselves, that we are to please our neighbor for his good, to build him up for his edification. He then says in verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Another translation of the Bible translates the end of verse 3 this way. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So in support of Paul's statement that Christ did not please himself, what he does is he here quotes a section of Psalm 69. Psalm 69. As it is written. You know, you've seen those words before as we've moved through the book of Romans, right? It's him referring back to the Old Testament scriptures. And here he's specifically referring back to Psalm 69 and specifically, more specifically, the latter half of verse 9 of 69. Now, in case you don't know, Psalm 69, along with a list of other psalms, is commonly referred to as a messianic psalm. A messianic psalm. You know, the Psalms are songs, songs of praise and worship to God, but some of them are categorized as messianic psalms. So what does that mean? And by the way, that could be a study. That'd be a good study in and of itself, brother, really, uh, if you want to pick that up after Proverbs or whenever uh, you're done. Uh, it's actually an incredible study to, to take a look at the messianic psalms. But, uh, and so I'm not, I can't tell you everything right now that we could... I could say about that, but, but generally speaking, it means that the psalm, and, and it's usually not the entire psalm, uh, but rather parts of the psalm, that it, those parts refer to or are connected to Christ or the promised Messiah in some way, or they, they prophetically look forward to or find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ in some way whether it be his, his life or even his birth or his death, often his death. Uh, so, for instance, uh, let me just remind you of this passage. So you could flip back to the left, uh, Luke 24, Gospel of Luke, Luke 24. This is in support of just understanding that uh, there's the, the Old Testament speaks of Jesus Christ. And so do the Psalms. So uh, Psalm, or Luke 24, remember this is the, on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus appears to uh, some of his disciples, and in verse 27, 
Um, he reveals himself to them, and then it says in 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Just so you understand that phrase, Moses and all the prophets, that's shorthand for the Old Testament scriptures. So in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, his disciples, in all the scriptures, that would be the Old Testament scriptures, the things concerning himself. There were things in the scriptures concerning himself, and he explained that to them. Then you uh, let your eyes glance down to verse 44. Then he said to them, his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the, what? Psalms must be fulfilled. So that's uh, another way of fulfilling or referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. Okay, so there are things in the Old Testament that speak directly to or about or are prophetic concerning Jesus Christ, many things. And so we find that to be true with the Psalms as well. So an example of another messianic psalm that many Christians are familiar with is Psalm 22. Psalm 22, you don't have to turn there, but I'll pull out a few. Uh, The psalm, by the way, was written by King David, like many of the psalms were, uh, approximately around 1,000 B.C., so about 1,000 years prior to the coming of Christ. And it prophetically looks forward to, I would say the entire psalm, does, prophetically looks forward to Christ's death on the cross. So it's interesting because David wrote it, uh, King David wrote it, but uh, remember, Jesus Christ is the son of David. He is the great son of David. He is in the line. He comes from that line. And so there's a sense in which, as David writes this, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the great son of David which is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so, for instance, in verse 1 of Psalm 22, very familiar and often quoted in the New Testament, uh, Psalm 22, along with Psalm 69, by the way. But Psalm 22, there we read this, again, words penned by David, but prophetically finding their fulfillment, their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Sound familiar? Yeah, it should. In Matthew 27, 46, those very words are recorded as being spoken by Jesus Christ when he hung on the cross. Okay, that's just how the psalm begins. But it goes further. I'll show you a few more. Psalm 22, 6 through 8. Again, penned by David, King David, but finding its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and specifically in this case in his death, his crucifixion. Verse 6 but I am a worm and not a man. Remember, written a thousand years prior to the coming of Christ, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Quote, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That also should sound familiar. In Matthew 27, verses 39 through 44, there the gospel writer records these words, and this is concerning the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. These are verbatim words right from that psalm. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way they mocked him. Again, we have that psalm looking forward to the exact events that we find being fulfilled in Jesus Christ at his crucifixion. Uh, Here's another one, very specific, Psalm 22.18, all in that psalm, Messianic Psalm. I'm just showing you as an example so you can get a flavor for it. There, David writes, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sound familiar? It should. John 19, 23 through 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, 
They took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, don't want to destroy it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And then just in case you missed it, John adds some commentary. This, this occurred, this happened. It was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. And what scripture was that, beloved? Psalm 22. Psalm 22 in a thousand years prior to the coming of Christ. Okay, so you kind of have an idea of a messianic psalm, right? So let's look back now at Romans 15.3 in the language from Psalm 69. A messianic psalm that Paul is applying to Christ. He's connecting it to Christ. In order, and he's doing that in order to support his claim that Christ did not please himself, okay? So he, he's, he's adding this section, referring to the section from this messianic psalm in support of what he just said, for Christ did not please himself. And then he quotes Psalm 69, latter half of verse 9. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What does the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me? Simply this, I believe. It means that the insults of the people that were directed at God fell upon Christ instead. The insults of the people that were directed at God fell upon Christ instead. One um, Bible commentator commenting on that phrase, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, he wrote this, trying to explain it, they, the people, manifested toward him, Jesus, the inbred hatred of God, native to the unregenerate human heart. Now, was that true of Jesus? Yeah, right? We know that's true, right? That can be said to be true of Christ actually throughout his earthly ministry. Uh, we see that the reproaches of those who reproached God fell on Jesus Christ. He received those insults, those insults that were really hatred for God. He aligned himself with the Father. He was the Son of God. And as such, doing his will, he received that hatred upon himself. And while that can be said to be true of Christ in different places in his earthly ministry, I am inclined to think that Paul is probably thinking of the insults or reproaches that Christ bore at the time of his crucifixion as he willingly and selflessly fulfilled his Father's plan to redeem and save helpless sinners. For he did not please himself. Remember this, let me remind you, in case you've forgotten, just before the cross, what occurred. Matthew 27, 27 through 31 are actually in preparation on the way to the cross. It says this, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they what? Mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had, what? Mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. On the cross... You might remember this, recorded in Luke chapter 23, verses 35 through 37. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also, what? Mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The reproaches of those who reproached you 
fell on me. Now, I believe that is what Paul is referring to. I believe that it certainly uh, supports, I think that's what he's thinking of, and it supports his statement that Christ certainly did not please himself. Uh, He gave his life away for the benefit of others, served for the benefit of others, denied himself for the benefit of others, made sacrifices for the good of others. It's interesting, I was reading one commentary, and he, they said uh, that someone might ask the question, well, listen, why, why did the apostle refer to the uh, insults or uh, reproaches that were uh, poured upon Christ or heaped upon Christ by men rather than something like more terrible, like the wrath of God which he suffered? In other words, why didn't he use that as his example when he said, for he did not please himself, for he suffered the wrath of God, you know, and it's not wrath for his sin, but for the sin of his people, for all those he would redeem, for all those who would believe in him. And the writer says this, I just found this interesting, the answer might be that in doing, in so doing, in referring to the insults and the reproaches of men against Christ, Paul makes his argument, he says, all the more effective because the insults flung at Christ by men were heard, discussed, and remembered, but the wrath of God remained unseen. The wrath of God remained unseen. So if you were there and uh, you observed what happened or you were around during that time, you would have been told what happened, but you certainly would have been quite familiar with the truth that He bore those reproaches, those insults, because they heard them, they saw it occur. The wrath of God that was poured out on him certainly was a reality, but something that men could not see. That was a spiritual reality that was revealed to us in the Word of God. Another writer says, uh, Paul could have drawn attention to what is more significant, that Christ bore the wrath of God in bringing us salvation, but the wrath was not apparent to those who saw what was happening while the insults were heard by all who were there. So it immediately connects with his readers. They get it. They understand it. He did not please himself. He did not please himself. He he bore the insults. of the, He bore that hatred that was directed toward God in the unregenerate heart. He bore it all. We saw it occur. We saw it happen. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, I have uh, several quotes, and I just want to read them because to you because and make a few comments because I find them to be helpful. I just want you to continue to, to bear in mind what Paul is saying and communicating and, and try to take it into your own heart. Uh, one writer says this, pastor friend, he says, again, in light of all that we've just looked at in the first three verses, if anyone had a right, I mentioned this last week even, to please themselves, it was Christ. And yet, he consciously gave up that right to take upon himself the hatred of mankind for God the Father. Huh? And so just, just remember the context in which this is all occurring and, and this uh, exhortation by Paul and then this example of Christ. You have the strong and the weak, and, and he, right now he's exhorting the strong, and he's saying, "You listen, guys, surrender your freedom for a time. Be willing. You should be willing to surrender some of your freedom or not, or the exercise of your liberties in Christ for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Is that really too much to ask? Here we have Jesus Christ himself, who if anyone had the right to please himself, it was him, and yet for the good of his people, he took upon himself the hatred of mankind. He died a shameful, horrific death on the cross, mocked, spit upon, crucified. That's our example. One general application that you could also make, and and again, because we don't find ourselves in the specific context of 
of the Roman church and what was going on there with the strong and the weak and this particular situation that they were having disagreements over. But one writer says this, listen, if Christ, the very Son of God, the Son of God, did not order his life so as to please himself, how much more, how much more should we forego all personal advantage and follow the path of the suffering servant? How much more? That's, uh, that's something you need to ask yourself. You need to let your heart take that in. Let your mind process that. When you look at the specific context, the issue that they were having over uh, particular dietary laws and what one should eat or shouldn't eat or days they should celebrate or what which one should drink or not drink. And the writer, one writer says this, again, looking at Christ, he's the example. If Christ, the Holy One, so he's the Holy One, he's the Son of God, if he was willing to take upon himself so much suffering, and he did, in the form of insults hurled at him by his enemies, then should not we be willing to sacrifice just a little eating and drinking pleasure for the sake of our fellow believers? Huh? You know, it's just this, it's this attitude like, well, I have a right to do that. I, I can, I, I'm, I'm at liberty to eat. Whatever I want to eat, if I give thanks to God. And that's, again, I'm talking about the specific historical context of Romans, right? And that is true, and Paul agreed. Yes, you do. What you don't have the right to do is use that liberty in a way that would hurt your weaker brothers and sisters in Christ, that were having a hard time embracing that liberty because of their Jewish tradition and growing up under the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. You don't have a right to do that. And what are we talking about here? So that you might, you might give up a little bit of eating and drinking pleasure? Seriously? You see? It's, it's very, when he compares it to Christ, it just makes it so much more heavier and demonstrates the, the real silliness of the position uh, that the strong were insisting upon. They just need to grow up. They just need to get with it. Yeah, but you understand. Remember, now I'm going back a little bit. As you, as you do that to them and kind of push yourself on them, then you put them in a position where they end up violating their conscience and it does damage to them spiritually. You can't just temporarily surrender your rights, your, set them aside. Jesus, almighty God, son of God. Remember this last week? He didn't, although he is equal with God, he didn't believe it was something to hold on to or grasp, but he set aside his his glories temporarily. To do what? To come to this earth and be born a man? Oh, that is a downgrade, beloved, uh, from the Son of God. I'm just saying. It's a downgrade, okay? Uh, Into this world to be born as a servant? And then to go as a humble servant and die a death, and not just any death, but death on a cross? And you don't want to give up your pork for a little period of time? That's not, that's not love, that's self-love. You see? And again, another writer just says this, occasionally... And again, speaking to the context, abstaining from meat or wine or observing a special religious day should not seem like much of a burden in comparison with what Christ had to suffer for the sake of others. Here's something else to consider. One last uh, quote, at least in this section. Someone wrote this. He said that Jesus was supremely the person who ministered on behalf of others, not for himself. Is that true, beloved? Is that true? That is true. It is fitting, therefore, that those who take his name should imitate him. Hmm? Is, that, is that true? What? Wait, let me start over here. 
Jesus was supremely the person who ministered on behalf of others, not for himself. Is that true? Yeah. It is fitting, therefore, that those who take his name should imitate him. Is that true? Yeah, that's true, beloved. That's true. Uh, we know that's true. And if you were here with us some time back, I went through the book of First John. That makes it very clear that that is true. And I'll just remind you of what John says in First John. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And how is that? That's, I don't know, let's see, in love, in self-sacrifice, in self-denial, in seeking the good of others, in serving God with his whole heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and serving his fellow man. In uh, 1 John 3.16, same book, says this. I'm just reminding you of some things we've looked at before. By this we know love. This is how we know it when we look at Christ, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Look here, this is not even a call to lay down one's life. It's just to lay down your sandwich. Man, we are a messed up group of people. I'm just saying, I'm not talking about uh, us, Summit Bible Church. I'm saying humanity, and I'm saying even the church. The church, they're, they're redeemed. They're being transformed. They're being changed. They, they have been saved, and God is saving them and conforming them to the image of Jesus Christ. But uh, they are far, as has already been said here this morning, far from perfect. Right? unbelievable the way we can treat one another, but we have the word of God, we have his grace, we have the spirit of God, and so we repent, right? That's right. We repent, we turn from self-love and selfishness and self-centeredness, and by his strength, we turn to biblical love that enables us, empowers us to sacrifice for one another, to set aside even our rights for one another, to to give something up for the good of the one who sits next to us or around us. That's the power of Jesus Christ in a person's life. Uh, When when we looked at 1 John 3.16, I quoted to you back when we did this you know, a long time ago. This, I love this quote. It says, this is the kind of love, this biblical love that, that John refers to is a love that is prepared to meet the needs of other, others, whatever the cost in self-sacrifice. A love that is prepared to meet the needs of others, whatever the cost in self-sacrifice. Who has that kind of love, beloved? Huh? Who has it? Super duper Christians, like, uh, so after, you know, after you go through the Christian course for about five to ten years, and then you get your degree there, and then you go for your master's of super duper Christian, um, then at some point, you can love like this, and you can, you can, you're, you're ready to meet the needs of others, whatever the cost in self. No! The second you become born again in Jesus Christ, the second that happens, you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. Your heart is changed, and you are able by His strength and power to love like this, and are called to love like this, are expected to love like this. We would avoid a lot of the mess that we create not only in the church but in our own personal lives if we would take this call seriously. Huh? Huh? Christian love is a love that is willing to make sacrifices, even great sacrifices for the good of the one loved. It is a love, beloved, that is willing to humbly deny oneself for the sake of others. You know, Pride is the enemy of this kind of love. And by the way, 
This love doesn't call us just to simply deny ourselves, right? Remember I talked about that last week. So uh, God's not saying, listen, I don't want you to uh, ever please yourself. Uh, Don't ever do anything that you find enjoyable. Uh, uh, That's what Christian love is, right? So like I said, you know, don't, That's asceticism. That was something that religious folks practiced, like I told you, to try to get closer to God. So, for instance, sleep, like I said, sleep on a hard floor, don't sleep on a bed. Don't enjoy some of the uh, neutral and acceptable uh, pleasures in life that God provides. Deny yourself, you know, and then you can, you know, walk around going, I'm, you know, what's wrong with you? You look uh, really sad. Well, I'm denying myself. I'm denying myself everything I could possibly deny myself so that I grow closer to the Lord. I'll become more whole. No. Look, deny yourself here is the idea of you have, you, you, you can deny yourself this thing. You have a choice to deny yourself this legitimate thing in this particular situation for the good of someone else, which is exactly what the context was. That's the denial he's talking about. Jesus set aside his glory, but he got it back, right? But for a time, he set it aside. So it wasn't like, I'm never going to share in that, the glory of my position in heaven and with God and as the Son of God. I'm, I'm never, that's it, I'm done with that. No, he set it aside for a period of time by coming to earth and taking on this additional human nature, being born a servant and going to the cross and dying. He set it aside, but then he was glorified, right? He was exalted. And so he received that, that again in, in, in his proper place, and it was awesome. But he denied himself for a time that he might redeem us. You see? Love. That's love. Now look back at Romans 15.4. Paul uh, says there, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, so another way you could say that is, so by remaining steadfast and in drawing encouragement from the scriptures, we might have hope. By persevering in the faith and drawing from the scriptures the encouragement that they give, we might have hope. Now, so here in the middle of this, verse 4, Paul appears uh, to, to digress or to temporarily move away from his main argument in order to make a statement here about the significance of the Scriptures, or as I've said to you, what we now refer to as the Old Testament, because that is what he primarily... And again, this passage would apply to all of the Scriptures, including the New Testament, but at the time, the New Testament wasn't completed, it wasn't collected, but what he's thinking about here is the Old Testament Scriptures, okay? And uh, which, by the way, he just quoted from Psalm 69 in order to support his assertion that Christ did not please himself. So what is Paul's statement about the Scriptures or the Old Testament that, and I mention this, that he quotes from, by the way, 61 times in the book of Romans. 61 times he draws specific directly. He alludes to it in other places too, but draws directly from it over 61 or 61 times in Romans. What is his statement? Well, it's this. It's that those scriptures, although they were written in the past, okay, so like you could say in former days or in former times, they were written down, and we know providentially preserved by God. Psalm 69, when was that written? A thousand years, okay? A thousand years. We have a hard time holding on to anything and preserving it for a year or two or three. A thousand years. So God preserved these scriptures in order that future generations of believers, like the Christians in Rome, like us 2,000 years now later, might be instructed by them, by these scriptures. And Paul is drawing instruction from them. And one of the purposes of this blessed instruction from God's word, the Holy Scriptures, is that we would be enabled to live in hope. By it, that by the scriptures, by the instruction that comes from the scriptures, we would be enabled to live in hope. 
And what is that hope? That is the Christian hope that makes it possible for us as believers in Christ to look beyond our present distress to a better time yet to come, to our glorious future with Christ, and thereby persevere through the difficulties or challenges, small or large, that we might face in this life. Now, why is Paul talking about hope all of a sudden, you know, in the middle of all this? And, and you know, commentators look at that and they say it might seem to be a, a, just a detour in Paul's argument. And it could be. Maybe he just entirely digresses here. He's like, I just want to... I want to talk to you about hope, you know, and, and we, get, we find encouragement and hope in the scriptures, but I think, I think we can find a connection even with the present situation. A hope, as one person puts it, hope, this kind of hope is accompanied by the ability to bear up under the pressures of this life uh, or the spiritually hostile and irritating circumstances that we might face in this life as as uh, believers in Jesus Christ. And, and bear up, when you think of the word bear up, you could think of uh, being able to stay cheerful in some difficulties that we might face. So I would, I would say, even though it's maybe a small thing, these, these uh, folks in Rome aren't uh, being, at least in this particular situation, he's not addressing that they're uh, being persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ. There is some difficulties that they're experiencing as they try to come together as one Jew and Gentile and from their different backgrounds. And yeah, it might cost you something. And it is going to cost you something if you follow Jesus Christ. It is. In this case, you know, giving up some stuff like your liberties for a time being and and humbly coming along your brothers and sisters in Christ and, and trying to help them through the process and see them grow in their faith. Yeah. But guess what? What we find in those scriptures is hope that enables us to to bear up, to continue and persevere with cheerfulness. So again, not like, you know, uh, okay, fine, Paul. Yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll, I guess, give up our food, you know, and maybe celebrate a couple of days with these guys if that's what love calls us to do. Really? No. Uh, Listen, life is difficult and the church has its problems, okay? Uh, Because there's people in it. There's people in it. That's why. And so hope in the scriptures, it it reminds us, enables us, there's a time coming when you and I, my friends, will be glorified. None of this stuff will be the case anymore. Then you and I will love each other perfectly. Oh, my. We will love each other. I can't wait. I can't wait. I don't even, you know how much time is wasted in churches on this kind of stuff? How often they are distracted through infighting and bickering and their self-centeredness individually and corporately? Huh? I look forward to the day where those things are no longer an issue. Huh? And it's coming. And because I know it's coming in Christ, because I know it's coming, okay, I can bear up under this and I can even do it with joy. This is the present lot that we find ourselves in. We are not without hope, though. And as we struggle through these things, and this is why forgiveness is such a key element of the, of the church because we're going to have to forgive one another because we're going to hurt one another. We're going to wound one another. On purpose? I hope not. You know, maybe sometimes, yeah. But uh, just because we're messed up. So we need hope. We need hope to press on and to, and to love that person even when they're not lovable, maybe. So think about the weak. The weak are like, you know, remember he told them, stop judging the strong. Remember he addressed the weak, so they're like, I can't believe you're doing that. I can't believe you would eat that sandwich. Oh, my, it's forbidden. Oh, you know, it's like, so, oh, man, this, I don't want to give it up for you because you're wrong. I have freedom in Christ to eat this sandwich, man. And hope allows me to say, it's okay, I, 
I, I, you're not there and neither am I. We're not there, so we're in this mess together. I'll love you through the power of Christ and the ability that he gives me to do that. He has set the example for me. I'll, I'll, I'll deny myself. I'll humbly come alongside you. I will care for you. For your good, I will do this. And I can do this because I know eventually I won't always be doing this. I won't always be doing this. At some point, things will be made right. And that gives me hope. It gives me the strength. Can you imagine if it was always going to be like this? Beloved, this is not heaven, okay? This, okay, the church is beautiful and wonderful, and God is conforming us, but I am just telling you, it ain't nothing like it's going to be, okay? It ain't nothing. Because if it was, if this was it, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, huh? Think about it, right? We got people, I mean, people complain about, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking about a time where people would not complain anymore. Yeah, that gives me hope. <laughs> One day, they won't complain about that. They won't do that. They'll, they'll find their satisfaction in Jesus Christ completely. One day, I won't complain like I do, and I'll find my satisfaction and contentment in Jesus Christ perfectly. I'll be perfected. I'll be glorified. One day. All right, so I don't know where I got. Okay, so uh, now let's take a quick look at the last two verses, a quick one. It's uh, verses uh, 5 and 6. So what is recorded in these verses is, is basically it's Paul's prayer spoken out loud. It's uh, the, his prayer for the church in Rome. It's basically a prayer that they would live in unity with one another. So, you know, he's praying, he's writing it down, but this is his prayer, and he, he records it so that they know exactly what he hopes for them and even in some ways, the, there's exhortation here, you know, that they can find in it. So, be like me going, God, I pray that these people would stop complaining, you see? And so you hear that, and that's my prayer, but then you, you might hear that, and, you know, it'd be like, you ever done that with your children? It's fun. You can do that. So with your kids, you can just, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray right now. Let's just pray. All right, Father God, I pray that you would help Susie and Johnny stop trying to kill each other, that they would love one another. And you see, you're, you're praying for that sincerely, but they also, it's a way of, hum, you know, nicely exhorting them, gently exhorting them to do the right thing. That's what Paul does. So here in verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement. So may the God who is the source of your endurance, endurance and encouragement, he's the one that enables you to persevere and he provides you the encouragement you need in this life through the, his word as the spirit of God takes that word and, and plants it deep into your heart and gives you the ability to believe it and trust in it. May the God of an endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Uh, one translation says it this way, give you, this is Paul's request, a spirit of unity among yourselves. And by the way, uh, this is in spite of their conscientious disagreements, okay? So th- they're still, Paul has not resolved anything yet, okay? He's not said the weak need to immediately change their position and understand their liberty in Christ and know that they can eat these things that they feel like they're forbidden from eating. He doesn't do that. He allows these these conscientious disagreements within the body of Christ to exist, but even in that state, they are to have unity. Why? Because those are non-essential issues. They are issues that they should not be dividing over. That should not be creating the conflict that it was creating. So he, he prays, so even in spite of that, in spite of, despite your differences of opinion over these non-essentials, my prayer is that God would grant you to live in harmony with one another. In accord, or in agreement, is another way to say that, with Christ Jesus. Now, that statement, in accord with Christ Jesus, or in agreement with Christ Jesus, uh, it's a short statement, but it's been understood in a few different ways. I'm not going to go through those, but generally it is thought to mean that their harmony, their unity, should be in accord or in agreement with either the will or the example slash pattern of Christ Jesus. It should be in a line with or in agreement with 
Christ Jesus. And, and I would lean towards this idea of being in, uh, in alignment with his example, with his pattern of life. So, Rome, so the NIV translates Romans 15.5 as an example this way. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. Uh, again, that's their interpretation of in accord with Christ Jesus. As you follow him, as you model your life, your conduct after him, may that give you a spirit of unity. And what is that conduct? What is that life? What is that example? It's that selflessness. It's that willing to deny oneself for the good or the sake of others. Okay? And, uh, and then verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the Greek, leave it up for a second, please. The Greek word translated there, together, together in the ESV anyway, it denotes the, uh, the inner unity, it communicates this, the inner unity of a group of people engaged in an externally similar action. Okay? So the uh, NIV translates verse 6 like this, the SV, that together. It translates it this way, and this is an acceptable translation as well. So that with one heart and one mouth, together, it's that idea of togetherness, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays that God would grant the church in Rome a spirit of unity among themselves. Why? For what purpose? So that they may truly come together as one, with one heart and mouth, to glorify or to honor or to praise or magnify God. Magnify God. One writer commenting on that says this, I thought it was worth drawing our attention to. Unity among the Roman Christians is important. And Paul uses many words seeking to encourage it. But this unity has a more important ultimate object. The glory of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's the ultimate purpose. Us coming together, us loving one another, us laying down our lives for each other, us serving one another... It is for our good, but ultimately the greater purpose of all that, beloved, is the glory of God. It's like, you know, I've talked to people about their marriages. Listen, uh, if you submit yourself to what the Word of God says concerning your roles in your marriage, husband and wife, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. You will uh, receive good things from that, and that's wonderful, and God uh, delights to give you that. But ultimately, your desire, your goal should be that you do all those things so that your marriage would glorify the Lord. You hear me? It it really ultimately isn't about you and I. It ultimately is about God. And when I say it, I mean everything. Everything. The whole story. The whole thing. From creation to to the consummation and exaltation and glorification to the kingdom. It's all about God. It's all about his honor. It's all about his glory. And once we accept that, we'll be in a much better place. We should submit to these things. We should do these things, not just because things will go better for us. That is true. That is true. But ultimately, that God would be honored and glorified. Just like the marriage example, right? We know that the marriage, Ephesians tells us, it's a picture of something very beautiful, a picture of church and the church in Christ, right? And so men are exhorted based on that to love their wives as Christ loved the church. They are modeling for the world what that love looks like. Now that's sadly a very poor portrayal of what Christ's love really is, but we are called to lay down our lives for our wives, to serve them, to care for them. Why? Because by doing that, we portray something beautiful, something wonderful, Christ's love for the church, and thereby God is honored and glorified. Huh? Same thing. Wives, respect your husbands. Why? Because the wives represent the church, and the church to submit their lives willingly to the Lord, to the Lord. And so when they do that, 
they picture what the church should be doing and look like, and by doing that, they glorify God. By the way, the marriage goes a lot better too. But I'll tell you, divisiveness, infighting, bickering, how does that honor the Lord? That doesn't honor the Lord. All calling them to unity, that they might come together with one mind, one heart, one voice, and glorify Almighty God, because He's worthy of it. In conclusion, one writer uh, said that this really, just this whole section right here that we've looked at is a call, verses 1 through 6, is a call to the strong in Rome to follow Christ's example of loving service of others as a means of bringing unity to the church and thereby glorifying the Lord God Almighty. Um, Earlier, beloved, I said that uh, you could even title this section, Put Other People First. That's how some have referred to it, Put Other People First. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that very gospel that we believe in, that gospel that has saved us, has set us free, has redeemed us, it frees us to do just that, put other people first. You know that? It does. Why? How do you you think that might play out? How does the gospel, and this is why we say over and over again, you need to rehearse the truths of the gospel, preach the gospel to yourself, meditate on the gospel in order to live the Christian life. In it, not only do we find salvation, but we find the power to live out that salvation in our lives. So, as an example, just something, uh, one example, the gospel frees us to put other people first because I am satisfied in Christ when I consider the gospel. I find there and there alone that I'm good. I'm good. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I have been made a son of God. I have been adopted into his family. I am a co-heir with Jesus Christ. What awaits me is glory. So all of that need, that feeling like I gotta, I gotta take care of myself. I gotta look out for me. If I don't look out for me, who's gonna look out for me? It's gone. It's wiped out in the gospel. I have been looked out for. I am being looked over by Jesus Christ. He is by His hand taking me and bringing me to Him. And so in that, I find peace. I find satisfaction. You So lay down this little thing or make this sacrifice for you. No big deal. No big deal. Because I am good in Christ. See the power of the gospel? But if I'm striving and, and thinking, I got to get this, I got to get that, I got to make sure I get everything that is coming to me, you know? I got I to gotta defend my liberties and all of this. Then chaos conflict, self-love, and so on and so forth. The gospel teaches us to to put other people first. We see that because we have the example of Jesus Christ himself. It it helps us to do just that because in the gospel we have hope. and, And so we know even if I have to make sacrifices in this life, I know in the end, in the end, I mean, this is what, guys? 70 years, 80, 90? Huh? Huh? Okay, so let's just say from day one as baby all the way to 90, you're sacrificing yourself for others. So what? I mean, seriously. And the reality is for us, we make sacrifices here or there. Huh? How many sacrifices did you make today? Well, if you're a mom with kids, you've already made sacrifices. But you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's many times where you're just, you know, you're not, you're not laying down your life all the time. Come on. We make, oh my goodness, I don't know if I can do that. Really? Really? If you had to do it from zero to 90, so what? You have the hope of eternity where you will be completely and fully satisfied and be able to delight in the Lord your God. And by the way, the gospel empowers us to do just that, to put other people first, because in the gospel you should be reminded that God gave you his spirit, right? You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It is that Holy Spirit that manifests himself in a believer's life, and we've talked about it before, but the first fruit as, as Paul lists those out in Galatians, the first fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Love. I find there in His power, in the one who indwells me, the ability 
to put other people first. Good luck trying to do it on your own. Good luck. It won't last long, that's for sure. But it will last and it will be effective and it will be for the glory of God when you rely upon the Spirit of God to do just that. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, its instruction to us, its correction, its exhortation, its rebuke. Father, I pray. Uh, I just pray that you would continue to work in us through it. Help us, Lord. Help us by it to become more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, not, not so that we can have some reason to brag, oh my goodness, how we mess stuff up. We try to take credit to ourselves for these things. Not for that reason. And not even just so things might go well or better for us, but ultimately, Lord, that as we live out this Christian thing, this Christian life uh, by faith, that we would bring glory to you, honor to you, praise to you. Help us to do that, Father. You've created us for that very purpose. Help us to fulfill it in Christ and by the power of his strength. It's in his name we pray, amen.